Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, Commissioning Arts Editor. And I'm Lila, the FT's Community Editor. Coming up on today's show... We'll be talking film festivals and looking forward to some of this year's most anticipated movies with one of the FT's film critics. And as the hit TV series Big Little Lies returns with a new season, Grizz and I will be delving into the changing role of the wife in the cultural imagination. So first up on the podcast today, joining Grizz in the London studio is FT film critic Raphael Abraham. Raf, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks very much. So you've recently come back from Cannes. I have, yes. I was there for the Cannes Film Festival, which, uh, as I'm sure everybody knows, is the biggest, most famous film showcase in the world. And you've been going for a while. Yeah, I've been going for slightly frightening 17 years on and off. <laughs> um, as you say, it's the biggest film festival in the world. Is that kind of why it's so important to keep going back? Yeah, well, the thing with Cannes is you can see dozens of films in the space of sort of 10 days and really get a feel for a lot of stuff that's coming up and stay on top of sort of what's happening in the world cinema scene and get an early view of what's good and what's worth pursuing. So as a film journalist, you know, you can then work out who's worth interviewing and, you know, which films are likely to be hot. And it's just a really good way to see a lot of films and a lot of people in a short space of time. And there have been questions around Cannes recently, particularly its kind of significance in this modern world of streaming and its relationship with Netflix, which has been quite fraught. We've talked about it on the podcast before. Did you get a sense of all of all that kind of thing when you were there? Yeah, there's definitely been a sort of sense that Cannes has not exactly been in crisis, but it's definitely been dealing with some difficult issues. And one of them is this sort of ongoing battle with Netflix where they won't allow Netflix films into competition if they're not shown in French cinemas. So that that dispute's ongoing. So they weren't any Netflix films in the main can selection again this year. Um, so and that's the second year that they've essentially banned Netflix from their festival. That's right. It's the second year, yeah, where, where Netflix haven't been had any films present. I mean, it's Netflix who said, if you won't let us into the main competition and the main sort of a f the main strands, then we, we won't put our films in there. And there's another thing that's going on, which is I think sort of more broadly because of the timing of Cannes, because it's in May, it's not an ideal time for people to launch films for the Oscar season. So rival festivals such as Venice and Toronto that happened sort of late summer, oh. early autumn, are better placed for studios launching their Oscar campaigns. And the real reason why that matters is that you don't get the stars coming up the red carpet and the world's media attention on the festival. So if you don't get the stars coming, then if you're a global media event like this, you're in trouble. So, Raf, as you say, you've been going to Cannes for a long time. 
what is one of the weirdest can experiences that you've had? Well, the weirdest episode that I can remember um, was when I used to work for this uh, now defunct film trade paper called Moving Pictures. And we were we were outside this bar, sort of back streets of Cannes, and this guy came along in a sort of Marilyn Monroe dress, but wearing a fake beard, and an <laughs> announced <laughs> that, um, and it was a sort of clearly a sort of Bin Laden uh, beard. This was at the time. Wow, the, yeah. Yeah, of, of, of the Afghanistan war. And he announced in this ridiculous sort of fake Middle Eastern accent, what well, I'm not going to do it. He, he said, I'm here with my new show, Osama Like It Hot. <laughs> <laughs> and you do get these characters sort of wandering around Cannes who are trying to make it and get noticed and whatnot. So, foolishly, I gave him my business card. And then a few days later, he turned up at the offices of this magazine I worked for in the middle of the day and started doing his whole routine while everyone was on sort of press deadline. So nobody laughed. Everyone just looked up momentarily, thought, oh, my God, and just got back to work. So, you know, it was sort of totally fell flat. And... Um, that was that was weird enough, but as it happened, in the office at that moment was a sort of veteran Israeli film producer, who I won't name, but he produced a lot of sort of big cheesy 80s Hollywood movies. Um, some people will be able to work out who that is. Um, and this Israeli guy got so incensed by this sort of comedy Osama routine that he sort of raced over to, to challenge him, at which point, and I kid you not, his trousers fell down. <laughs> And so here's this old Israeli film producer walking through the office with his trousers down, shouting at this guy, who then turned out spoke Hebrew himself. So the two of them shouting at each other in Hebrew in the middle of our offices. And um, that wannabe comedian actually was the guy who became known as the comedy terrorist who cr climbed over Buckingham Palace wall, was mm. arrested and then sort of shamed on in the national newspapers on TV. So there you go. That was by far the weirdest thing. That is truly surreal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beat anything on the screens that year. So, Raf, this year we sent you off to Cam with a little assignment, which was to make an audio diary for the podcast. Yes, I've never done that before and I did my best. Dutifully. Thank you. <laughs> Just testing. Hello, hello, hello. Testing, testing. Hello from Cannes. I've just arrived here for the film festival and uh, on the way I met a very nice young German actor who'd appeared in some films by Steven Spielberg and Quentin Tarantino, among others. And he told me a f an incredible story about going to the Oscars one year but not having any accommodation and uh, ending up sleeping under a bridge in Los Angeles. And um, it's a lot like uh, how can is really you've got this uh, incredible glamour of the red carpet and people sashaying up and down in ball gowns and tuxedos and then you've got a lot of chances who just turn up and hang around the festival and desperate to get noticed and uh, get something made and often end up sort of sleeping on floors or on the beach so it's uh, it's this place of incredible contrasts and everyone's sort of united by this love and often obsession with movies and uh, that's kind of what binds everyone together here. It's what brings us all here. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun and um, it's hard work, even though no, no one believes it. 
And, uh, you know, there's the occasional bit of glamour, so which I'll try and convey some of that to you. So um, I'm off now to check out the first film, which is called The Dead Don't Die, and it's by Jim Jarmusch. Hopefully it should get everything off to a fun start here. It's not all sort of heavyweight world cinema art house fare. They also bring us some lighter offerings just to mix things up and hopefully bring a bit of uh, star power to Cannes, which it's been slightly lacking in recent years. So I'll report back. Hello, hello. Just testing again. I'm not sure what's going on. It's the uh, end of my first day here in Cannes and um, back in my hotel, having seen the opening film, which uh, I have to say turned out to be quite a disappointment. It's sort of become a tradition here that the opening film is uh, a bit of a dud. And uh, every year we all think, no, no, this year, this will be the year where the, the opening film's a winner. It wasn't to be. I think probably the uh, the biggest laugh of the night came earlier when the, during the opening speeches uh, they, they cut to Bill Murray who was wearing his usual deadpan expression and uh, he was caught resting his eyes and uh, the cameraman quickly cut away from him and I think that probably got the biggest laugh of the night to be honest. So uh, anyway, lots still to come and uh, lots to look forward to. going on with this thing is this thing is this thing not working it sounds very strange when i play back it's sort of i don't know like it's um not picking me up properly so it is day two here in Cannes, the morning of wednesday and i'm about to head off to the press center to write up my review of last night's film then I'm very much looking forward to going to an event at the rather swanky Majestic Hotel, uh, which is hosting a conversation between Werner Herzog and uh, Xavier Dolan, the um, young French-Canadian director. So uh, looking forward to that, and I will report back later. Okay, so I'm back in my hotel, and... Uh, yeah, the conversation did not disappoint. Uh, Werner Herzog in particular did come out with some choice lines talking about his distaste for people who collect hundreds of hours of footage for their films where he, he likes to, to keep things tight. So yeah, he said um, he likes to tell his crew, we are filmmakers, not garbage collectors. So uh, that was definitely an improvement on the opening film. And uh, let's hope for more good stuff. Hello. Right, so it's Wednesday morning here in Cannes. No, it's not. Right, so it's Thursday morning here in Cannes, and I'm off to see another film, a Brazilian film this time, called Bacurau. Uh, sorry for that pronunciation. Uh, and then later on, there's a, a French film called Atlantique, which is the first film in competition this year made by a woman director. About time. Um, there are still only a handful of women filmmakers with films in competition here this year, and Cannes rightly been taking some stick for that. And um, I thought I'd also just uh, tell you about a couple of the sort of more surreal sights that you see here in Cannes. Just walking up and down the Croisette, which is the main seaside promenade here, even if you go out first thing in the morning, as I just did, you see these young women 
dressed up to the nines at first thing in the morning wearing sort of ball gowns and dripping jewelry and, and all the rest of it and uh, i used to think are they all coming out from sort of all night partying naively maybe and then i was told no no they are they're girls who literally come into town and sort of wander up and down the quasette all day hoping to be spotted and discovered and put in a movie so um that's kind of surreal especially if you're kind of like me um barely dressed and uh, staggering along to see another film or go and get your morning croissant or something so I'm off to go and watch a film and write up some reviews, so I'll catch you later. So it's Friday night now here in Cannes. Um, I'm back in my hotel and uh, today has been uh, one of those uh, weirdly unexpected and wonderful days that you get at a festival like this. It began this morning in pretty somber fashion. I went to see the new Ken Loach film, Sorry We Missed You, which is uh, an affecting, powerful drama about a zero-hours contract uh, delivery driver in Newcastle. Then I went to a very nice lunch with Film 4, everyone talking about what they'd seen so far and what they'd liked and so on. And somebody mentioned that they'd uh, heard good things about this film called The Climb, which is showing out of competition in one of the sidebars. There are so many films here that it's impossible to see them all. I mean, they're literally, you know, hundreds. So um, you've kind of got to rely on word of mouth sometimes. And uh, so this film called The Climb was this was the film people were talking about. And, um, and I spotted that there was a screening this evening. So I went down and uh, didn't realise it was actually the uh, premiere of the film. So uh, there were the whole cast and crew and everything suited and booted. And it was absolutely terrific it's a really funny kind of bromance gone wrong comedy american independent sort of thing that you'd expect to find at sundance film festival mike i'm getting married how awesome is that awesome she's the best she's like the best person ever i don't have to change to be with her you know remember how marissa made me get that rob thomas haircut and tina made me be an atheist for a year yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Ava isn't like that. She loves me for who I am. And, and I love her for who she is. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with her. Kyle, I slept with Ava. What? What do you mean, slept? Like we, slept, we sexually slept together. Uh, oh my god. I'm gonna fucking kill you. Uh. And uh, yeah, it went down really well. Obviously, the crowd loved it. And um, I just have a funny feeling that that film, The Climb, is going to go on and become a bit of an indie hit. So you heard it here first and uh, hopefully not last. All right. More tomorrow. So it's now Sunday here in Cannes and um, raining, pouring with rain has been all weekend. But nevertheless, yesterday was a, was a good day. I did manage to get some time with the maker of the film, the Clive, first time director, Michael Angelo Covino. And we had a really good chat about 
comedies and how the comedy American comedy movie is kind of becoming a rare species, at least character-driven comedies, not this sort of high-concept uh, studio comedies. And uh, saw a couple more movies. Um, I saw Little Joe, this eco-sci-fi fable, which the less I say about it, the better, to be honest. I really didn't uh, get on with that at all. And then uh, the remaining film, which was uh, somewhat more... Oh, sorry, that's an alarm going off, reminding me to go and see another film. Um, uh, that's what life's like here. Bye. Hello, hello. Just testing again. What about like this? Is this any better? I wonder. I really do. Right, it is now Monday here in Cannes, and um, last night I saw five hours of movies back-to-back, largely thanks to Terence Malick, who has a new film here called Hidden Life. Uh, Terence Malick is an American director who used to be, his films were an event, they'd come once every 10 or 12 years and would be much anticipated, and then in more recent years he's been making films much more frequently and uh, I'm afraid the quality has uh, slipped a bit so I didn't have massively high hopes for this new one but it's definitely a bit of a return to form it's actually about something which is a help because some of the last recent films have been really just about people having this sort of vague existential angst Um, and then I saw another film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which was great, actually. I think it's probably the best thing I've seen in competition so far, so that's definitely one to to seek out. And I think that's enough from me, quite frankly, so um, I will bid you all good night. It's my last day in Cannes. And in fact, I am packing up and getting ready to leave to the airport. Uh, frankly, I'm a bit exhausted because uh, as much as much fun as it is, it does come to the point where by the eighth day of watching films back to back and writing stuff up and trying to sort of eat and sleep between it, it wears you down a bit. But very glad to have been here and glad I stuck around for the Quentin Tarantino film last night. It was the big one. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which luckily did sort of uh, live up to expectations and was worth sticking around for. It's hugely entertaining. He's obviously had an absolute riot making it, and it proves infectious. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. (laughs) So that was um, a nice way to sort of round things off before I had to file my report for this weekend's paper. So, Raph, having listened to that, I wondered whether that diary represents a kind of standard can. Is that, is that the way it usually goes? I think this year was better than the last few years. I do think 
we can say that Cannes has bounced back a bit. I think when the the initial, uh, initial lineup was announced, there was a bit of a worry that again they hadn't quite attracted you know enough big stars, and by that we mean really mostly American Hollywood stars, right? Uh, and then belatedly, they added the new Quentin Tarantino film and everyone sort of breathed a sigh of relief on Cannes' behalf because <laughs> that meant you were getting Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie and Leonardo DiCaprio and Quentin Tarantino himself, all of whom sort of, yeah, obviously carry a lot of weight and just attract a lot of attention. But there were lots of other good films, better films, in fact, which uh, either in the competition or outside of the competition. So this year, what I found... I learned from previous years that it's good to stray away from the main competition as well. Does it compare to like a music festival in the way that you always have that fear of missing out that actually what's the best thing is going on on the other stage? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. FOMO is a constant <laughs> feeling when you're, when you're at a film festival, especially because, you know, you sort of feel like you don't want to miss the winning film. Mm. And uh, so you're con- constantly sort of running between screenings and trying to write up reviews and whatnot in between and sadly for me tragically this is the first time I've been to a major film festival and missed the winning film well I was just gonna say you did miss the winning film (laughs) I did I did I didn't miss it like I was just sort of you know sitting uh, in my hotel by the pool (laughs) sipping a cocktail (laughs) it actually showed the night after I left which is really really galling and um just goes to show, I think, next year the FT has to make sure they send me for the entirety of but the even festival. longer. But even longer, <laughs> exactly. So if you were to give tips to check out this summer, what would you say are the three best films that you saw at Cannes? So of the films that I saw, um, which are coming out fairly imminently, um, the Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which comes out worldwide in July and August, uh, there's also the new Pedro Almodovar film, Pain and Glory, which has got a great performance by Antonio Banderas, sort of playing a version of the Spanish filmmaker himself. And the other thing which is coming out a little bit later in the year, which is in the autumn, which is the new Ken Loach film, Sorry We Missed You. So something for everyone. Something for everyone, <laughs> definitely. Great. Well, thanks for those tips, Raf. So, Grizz, listening to you chat with Raf was so interesting because uh, I always have sort of idealized the life of a film critic and you get these polished reviews in FT Weekend, but it it, it sounded in that diary like uh, Raf was pretty exhausted. Mm. I know. It's funny from my point of view as well, actually, because, um, you know, I work with him every day and I've always kind of thought like him going off to these film festivals must just be like really glamorous and fun. And he's kind of complaining when he says that it's tiring. <laughs> but actually... Right. Uh, it does sound really tiring. So, um, yeah, so I've kind of got to eat my words, I think. <laughs> so next up, we're moving from the big screen to the small screen because Big Little Lies returned this week with a new season, its second season. Big Little Lies is an HBO TV show about a group of mothers in California who become entangled in a murder in their children's school. And we thought this was a good opportunity to ask one of our best writers, Harriet Fitch-Little, to write something about the idea of the housewife, sort of um, linked to this idea of Big Little Lies, and how the housewife as a figure on TV has changed over time. 
And the argument that she makes is that the character of the housewife reflects our attitudes towards women in the wider culture. So we go from Carol Brady and the Brady Bunch, who's the kind of stable centre of the family, to the housewives in Big Little Lies, who are much more like, I think Harriet calls them, troubled anti-heroes. Yeah, what I loved about Harriet's piece is she discusses how housewives always exist as social satire, sort of. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There are no real happy housewives. Like, that's not the point. No, the housewife is there to be kind of like a sort of vessel for all the trouble and anguish and whatever's going on in the world. Uh, The other reason that you and I were thinking about housewives and wives is that we were swapping uh, all of these think pieces uh, over the past month that have been delving into the internet wife guy. Yes. And the idea of the wife and how the internet is subverting what our idea of a wife is. So what what actually is the wife guy? Because I feel like I'm still slightly confused about this. (laughs) Uh, How does one explain the wife guy? Um, The wife guy is a man who makes himself famous online by posting content about his wife. He's also sort of profiting off of his wife's qualities. And often it's kind of unclear whether his wife has consented to him profiting off of her qualities Mm. uh, or whether it's just um, a thing he has chosen to do for his own benefit. It's funny when this happens, isn't it? When suddenly it seems like the internet is kind of lighting up about the same thing at the same time. You know, it feels like the wife guy really had a moment, especially last week. Yeah, totally. So the first thing that I noticed was a New York Times piece by Amanda Hess. There was a piece about the wife and the changing role of the wife in The New Yorker by Gia Tolentino, and specifically about Borat's, I don't want to do it, but uh, my wife was like, my wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that you were going to do it. <laughs> thing, I wasn't, but here we are. Um, a month ago, there was a piece about the wife guy in New York Magazine by Madison Malone Kircher. There was a piece in Mel Magazine by Miles Klee. It's been happening for a number of years, but I think it's reached like a pinnacle over the past uh, few months. Yeah, we're in like wife guy saturation point. I think so. So as we mentioned at the top, Big Little Lies, a show that has gripped me, (laughs) uh, has come back for a second season just last Sunday. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? The Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our backs. It's gonna get us. It's gonna get us all. What are you talking about? The lie. It's funny because the premise isn't so different from a show like Desperate Housewives. Mm. In that there are these women living in uh, a wealthy, beautiful place uh, and they are unfulfilled and complicated and often unhappy and in some cases potentially hiding dark secrets or murderous Mm. or who knows. But this one feels different. Like ultimately there's this strange feminist message underneath it all. It tackles issues like domestic abuse and the value of therapy (laughs) and a good relationship between a woman and her therapist. Like, there are certain things that feel very modern about it. I I feel like it takes the housewife more seriously as a person. I mean, Desperate Housewives is kind of a parody 
in a, yeah. in a way that I think this is sort of playing with and actually you're forced as a viewer to take these people seriously partly I think because the performances are so good like Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman particularly yes and it's actually so much about female friendship and the complications of it which you know it's not the only show or the only piece of art that's doing that now but I think it's doing it in quite an interesting way maybe what this show is doing and actually frankly what Real Housewives is doing is actually making the husbands totally irrelevant. Yeah. And that's sort of what is pushing everything forward. I mean, The Real Housewives, I don't watch it very often, although my sisters are super fans, are almost none of them are married anymore. Mm, So they're not like housewives in the traditional sense of being a wife. No, they're just women making choices for themselves. uh, And however you choose to judge the choices they're making, it's all about them in relation to each other. Mm. Yeah, I think this is something that spans TV and lots of other art forms where what we're interested in is like the complicated inner life of the woman, not the woman's relationship with the man necessarily. There have been lots of books recently about, it's called like maternal ambivalence. So the kind of issues that you might have as a mother towards, you know, feelings of guilt or um, annoyance that you have towards your children that used Mm. to be quite taboo to, to talk about and... Now it feels like there's been quite an airing of all of those kind of feelings. You know, maybe the sort of housewife ambivalence that came before. We, we've we known, as you say, for quite a long time now that being a housewife isn't always this sort of perfect, fulfilling thing. Uh, can you tell me more about maternal ambivalence? Yeah, so, I mean, we actually did an episode of the podcast about this last summer, but there have been lots of books, including my favourite, Sheila Hetty, um, but other, lots of other people as well, both nonfiction and fiction, saying like being a mother is not a straightforward thing and it's not always the thing that will bring you most fulfilment in every way. And it's kind of um, opening up the space to say children can be really boring, children can be frustrating. <laughs> it, this isn't always going to be this like hugely joyful thing. Yes, of course it is sometimes, but I guess, you know, the figure of the mother from like... Christianity particularly is so held up on a pedestal that to say, actually, I'm not always enjoying this. You know, postnatal depression is being talked about more as well. And I think that's all part of this. Yeah. I I mean, I'm speaking, obviously, without being a mother, but I do think that it's important that we're able to talk about these experiences in quite a nuanced way because it takes the pressure off. All of these housewives are kind of the pressure is on keeping up the facade, right? Right. And all of these depictions of housewives are about how the facade can be easily crumbled. House cracks. (laughs) The house cracks, yeah. And that's progress. Mm. I want to talk to you, though, about the internet wife guy as well, because this feels like, and just also the wife on the internet, like there seems to be a collision of these two things, wife and internet. And I don't quite know why. (laughs) Do Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, please. I thought you would never ask. (laughs) Here are some examples of the wife guy on the internet. Number one is Cliff Wife Guy, who over Memorial Day weekend posted this video on Twitter that was universally mocked, where he and his wife were on a hike in Hawaii, and he basically turns the camera around and she's falling off the side of a cliff. And this is captured, uh, right, on, on camera? All captured on camera. Her crying... It was maybe a 15-foot drop, uh, and it's sort of, like, scary to watch and, and, like, jarring. And then 
you continue on in this programming <laughs> and uh, you're suddenly like down there with her and him and she's crying and not sure what's going on and he's trying to console her and screaming for uh, someone to help and then it cuts to this part afterwards where he's hugging her and she's saying that she uh, was sort of scared by the experience turns out she was fine everything was fine but it was weird because as you're watching you're realizing why is he recording like, yeah. who is this for? Like, whose benefit is this for? Mm. And really, it's for his. She fell down, but guess what? She didn't land on the hard rock. She landed on these soft ones. Um, okay, so that's Wife Guy, internet sensation. Next is uh, a man named Robbie Tripp, who posted a photo of his wife on Instagram with this long sort of woke, kind of woke for profit, like, caption about how he loves this woman and her curvy body. And that even thick girls who have cellulite, like, don't worry, there's a man out there who will love you like I do. I've come to terms with the fact that I think that women who, like, have different bodies can still be beautiful. So we're supposed to be so, like, well done you for fancying your wife. Is that exactly, the idea? <laughs> exactly. Okay. It was very much a, like, look at me. <laughs> But somehow he's found a way to, like, build a lifestyle brand around his curvy wife. He just dropped a music video for a song called Chubby Sexy, which is, like, very complicated and upsetting. But he is still around trying to make money off of this. The other thing that this reminds me of and that some of these articles brought up is this photo that went viral on Reddit uh, back in 2013 that still just kind of keeps showing up as a meme on the internet, which is just a photo of a garage that says in red spray paint, don't email my wife. And it has like four exclamation points after it. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think that that's like the perfect encapsulation about the fact that None of this has anything to do with the wives. Mm. Like, what's so striking about these wife guys and these wife memes is that the wife is not the point. They're positioning themselves as these good guys doing what women have silently been doing, like, basically for millennia. And the nice thing about the wife meme, actually, which I appreciate, is that it gives us a chance to not make fun of the wives, but make fun of the husbands and actually say we're not into that. Yeah, uh, so, Grizz, I have to ask, you have recently become a wife yourself. Yeah, less than a year ago. I am now <laughs> a wife. <laughs> uh, uh, what is it like? How is it to be a wife? Um, I very much feel married and happily married, but I don't, I have to say, I don't think of myself as a wife. I don't, um, you know, when I'm referred to, interesting. Uh, you know, by Tom or anyone else as a wife, it, to me, that's not me that's like someone much older than me <laughs> which is ridiculous I know but yeah it's funny I mean when do, when will I will I start feeling like a wife I don't know I don't know do you have to like if you get married do you have to be a wife well this is the thing I don't I mean I don't think so I don't think that I do have to be a wife I think you know one of the things we wanted to talk about with in this conversation is about the wife as a kind of loaded term and particularly in a kind of heterosexual coupling the wife can feel like like something retro and something that's out of step with um the views that I have about women so you know maybe I don't need to be a wife maybe I can be a married person maybe that's fine (laughs) 
<laughs> Tom can refer to you as his married person. As his married person. I think I'll, suggest, I'll go home and suggest that to him. <laughs> yeah, cool. That seems about right. So another thing that I've been wondering about is how the cultural perception of the wife has changed over time. Mm, um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot because um, at university I studied English literature and so much, I mean, basically everything in that canon is about marriage and getting married and trying to get married <laughs> and remaining married. Uh, so like wives kind of um, loom pretty large. Well, they did for me in those years. And actually last night I went to see a play at the National Theatre, Top Girls, which is a play from... 1982 by Carol Churchill and it's where she kind of mm. gathers these um, women from history uh, around a, it's kind of like one of those dinner parties like who would you have in your uh, imaginary historical dinner party and one of the characters is this woman called Patient Griselda who <laughs> <laughs> I know it's uh, so creepy Patient Griselda yeah. is the worst she she's called Patient because she is sort of known for her wifely obedience. Her husband tests her sort of with, with awful things like telling her that he's going to take her children away from her and kill them um, in order to sort of, te you know, test whether she's a good wife or not. And patient Griselda wow. just takes it. Um, she's like the most patient and awful wife um, <laughs> and my namesake. So that's nice. Uh, but yeah, she, <laughs> she features in... Um, you know, in, in Chaucer, in, in the Canterbury Tales, and she's, she I guess she's the model of, of obedience. And then you get to kind of Jane Austen, and it's slightly being broken apart, and the women are sort of quite witty and spiky, but, you know, still they are wives. And I was thinking, like, when did a change happen, at least in my reading of, of this kind of literature? And I feel like Virginia Woolf was the, the person that, for me, really cracks open the idea of of marriage and, and really explores the sort of psychological constraints of being a wife at that time when it was very socially, kind of economically limiting what you could do. Like So because she was so unhappy? Yeah, I, I guess so. And I guess she was attuned to that kind of unhappiness and particularly to kind of female unhappiness. There's nuance to her unhappiness that seems ahead of its time. Mm, totally. Um, and I was also thinking about another wife, actually. Um, that's not a good way to introduce her, but in London at the moment, there's an exhibition of the abstract expressionist painter Lee Krasner, who was also Mrs. Jackson Pollock. And I think for a really huh. long time, she, maybe more in this country, maybe in the States, people know her in her own right. But I feel here, like she hasn't had a show in Europe since the 60s, I think. She's basically known for being a wife. Um, and actually, she's the most incredible painter. And she also kind of interestingly came into her own after he died so she literally moved into his studio and started making these much bigger works because before the studio was his and she was making sort of small-scale works in their house and she literally didn't wow. have the space to do it wow so she sort of took over his space and it helped her come into her own yeah 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 it's an amazing and you know I think she was quite practical and she just thought well it's not being used anymore because he's dead so I'm going to use the space but there was definitely a bigger like psychic shift that took place right. it seems to anyway and the work is just like breathtaking, huge, huge pieces and amazingly kind of colourful and rhythmical. It was like a, it's a total revelation going to see the show and it made me think like, it's a great thing, but it's also sad that it's taken us quite this long to appreciate her. 
And basically she right. was overshadowed by being married to Jackson Pollock. And that she will always sort of be known in comparison to her husband. Mm. It's interesting to think about women who have careers in their own rights that are known in relation only to their husbands uh, or sort of can't escape that relationship with their husbands. Um, And it makes me think about the husbands that are known in relation to their wives. Mm. And I feel like that's starting to happen now more than before because we have sort of more powerful politicians that are women than we've seen in the past. So I'm thinking of uh, Theresa May uh, making a speech and her husband standing a step behind and to the left or right of her. Mm. Or I just watched a documentary on Netflix uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg called RBG, where uh, much of it is dedicated to uh, how devoted her husband was to his to her career. Um, Mm. And then there was another documentary called Bringing Down the House with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the new uh, representative from New York in the house. And her boyfriend was sort of this uh, small character throughout the thing, but sort of a consistent, quiet support system Mm. for her. And he became this whole sort of um, discussion online afterwards. And that it's funny to watch how we explain men in relation to their more powerful wives and the idea of taking on a subservient role and how that's celebrated as it should be, but still feels very self-aware. Yeah, I still don't... There's still something about that that I don't feel as a culture we've quite squared, you know? There's still Mm. something about it that... um, We don't quite know what to do with it or which, you know, it seems crazy after all these years of women working, um, like generations of, of women having careers and, and having fairly high-powered careers. But yeah. it's like the AOC boyfriend is still this kind of... A novelty. ...character who were like, oh, what does he do? Like, well, that's <laughs> right. not the point. <laughs> yeah, that's totally not the point. And we never would have asked that about, about, about the wife. No, um, no, that's the difference. Yeah. And maybe that's why the wife guy is so infuriating is that like he's like profiting, whether it's monetarily or um, just sort of getting props off of being a good guy. Mm. And and these men are are these husbands are wife guys yes. uh, who are getting credit for uh, just being good people. There's some social currency there that uh, <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. Um, but ultimately, even though I would prefer that we have wife guys, incidental or otherwise, than not wife guys, it still feels a little like it's giving men the credit for feminism. That's it for this week. You can read Harriet Fitchlittle's piece on Big Little Lies and the changing role of the TV housewife and all of Raf's film reviews at ft.com. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks to everyone who's gotten in touch. We love hearing from you, and we do answer every message, so please do reach out. You can email the show at everythingelse at ft.com, or you can find us both on Twitter and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. Everything Else is produced by David Waters. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and Lila Raptopoulos. And our music is composed by Fatim. 